Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And today, for this episode, we're joined by Mark Jacobson. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford. He runs Stanford's Atmosphere and Energy Program. An amazing researcher and amazing communicator. Look forward to having Mark on the show today. Hey, Mark, greetings. Welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, thanks for everything you do. It's my pleasure to uh, be able to interview people like you. Uh, you've done so much with your career. Uh, let's just start off really softball. Well, grew up where? I grew up in Los Altos Hills, California, near Palo Alto, halfway between San Francisco and San Jose. Yeah. And, yeah. Nice and, place to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. I went to school here, um, high school, college, and... Uh, and you know, learned learned everything I needed to try to solve the problems we're facing today. In that in that in that area, Northern California. Uh, what did you like when you were a little kid? Did you uh, what were what were your special interests? Well, I, I liked building things. I mean, back then we you know we had TV, but not all these not video games. So I was outside a lot, building forts and toothpick sculptures, and uh, did some ceramics and. Uh, but also I like to exercise, bike around. I walked and started, well, I played tennis and I uh, started running as well. So it's kind of sports work at school and kind of outdoor activities. Yeah, that sounds good. Very much like me. We, there wasn't time for a whole lot of TV watching back then, really. Oh, no, it was very limited. But bicycles were more of our, our outlet at the, in those early days, I guess. So then you went to Stanford close by for your undergraduate, is that right? Yeah, so yeah, I went to Stanford and studied, uh, well, I was interested actually since I was like 13 years old in understanding air pollution and then ultimately climate problems and trying to solve those problems because when I played tennis, I would travel to, to Los Angeles and San Diego or I did a few times and I, the air was so bad. Uh, this was back in the um, late uh, 1970s the air was so bad i just thought why should people live like this and i thought this is a problem i wanted to solve and so when i went to stanford i mean i was looking for classes that i could take uh that could address this problem but um unfortunately there actually were only a few they're very like when i want to say a few like two or three the most and there was no major um, i ended up majoring in civil engineering because there was a, an environmental engineering program which i ended up doing a master's in uh, which they uh, studied groundwater pollution. So that was the closest I got. But I also studied economics because I thought, well, if people want to solve this problem, they have to be able to afford it and it'll be a cost issue. Um, and so I thought those, at least those tools would give me some groundwork uh, for doing what I ultimately wanted to do, which was study air pollution and climate. Um, so it was only after... I finished my master's degree in environmental engineering that I I was looking around for an, an atmospheric science program to do a PhD and I landed at UCLA uh, where I found, uh, I was fortunate to actually, when I just went down to visit, I met a new professor. Well, he was senior researcher, but he was uh, new at UCLA, uh, Dr. Richard Turco, who had studied uh, atmospheric science quite a bit, including the theories of nuclear winter and uh, looked a lot on uh, the atmospheres of different planets and the stratosphere and stratospheric ozone as well. 
So yeah, I worked with him and he was, his specialty was computer modeling. And so I learned from scratch, basically how to write computer codes uh, for studying atmospheric problems. It sounds like you got, I read, I've done a little bit of research on you, but it sounds like there was this Gator GC com model that you were, really, <laughs> it was like, yeah, so, the bees well, need that, I guess. So that's a gap. So I developed an air pollution model. I, did, I developed most of the chemistry, well, all the chemistry and aerosol processes um, for this model that became a kind of a, it became a, I don't even know how to describe it in the, it was a, started as a regional model that uh, included meteorology, transport of pollutants, chemistry of pollutants, radiation transfer, uh, and ultimately like ocean processes and land processes. But it was a um, regional air quality and meteorology model. And uh, a colleague of mine at UCLA developed the meteorology part, and then I developed the, the chemistry and the air quality part. And we combined these models to form an air quality model. Actually, it was only the third air quality model in the world at the time, after the the air urban airshed model, which was developed by the EPA and some consultants, and the Caltech model. And so this was the third air quality model, but it was actually the very first one to couple meteorology and air quality interactively, where there was feedback between the meteorology and the air quality. And so that model I called Gator, Gas Aerosol Transport and Radiation Model. And I coupled it with this uh, meteorological model, which was the regional meteorological model um, of my colleague. And, but then eventually I grew that up to the global scale because the aerosol treatments and the gas treatments were very high resolution for studying urban air pollution in Los Angeles. So I actually used the model for my PhD to compare uh, predictions of gas and aerosol pollution and also radiation uh, radiation measurements of solar radiation, ultraviolet radiation, and absorption, radiation absorption by pollutants and meteorological parameters against data. So yeah, compared predictions of gas, aerosol, radiation, and meteorological parameters against data. And actually, I think that was the first uh, study ever to do that, comparing all four properties simultaneously against data. Did that, did, that discover, did that discover that we were in worse trouble than we thought we were in? Or well, that... at the time, I mean, there were some interesting feedbacks. Like one of the interesting feedbacks I found was like what was, because in, in Los Angeles, there were some measurements, for example, in downtown Los Angeles of ultraviolet radiation being reduced by 25 to 30% relative to a nearby mountain. And, but in, if you go to Riverside, which was east of LA, the reductions of ultraviolet radiation were 50%. So question is why, when you go to east LA, do you get a 50% reduction of ultraviolet radiation, whereas in downtown LA, it's only 25%. And it turned out, and this was, I was able to discover this through this computer modeling, it, where there are certain chemicals in the um, pollutants that as you, as the pollutants traveled from Los Angeles to Riverside, uh, you got more, you got more nitrogen in the particles. And they're called like nitrated aromatics, for example, there's, and nitrogen actually preferentially absorbs ultraviolet radiation. So I went and I found all these chemicals 
that had ultraviolet absorption properties and and hypothesized that these chemicals, the, the, the conversion of the particles to the nitration of the particles, the addition of nitrogen to these particles as they aged and, and traveled to the east of LA caused more and more ultraviolet absorption. And then I modeled that with the model and actually found that result too. So it was an observation that I was able to model and then discover chemicals and in particles that classes of chemicals that caused additional ultraviolet radiation absorption. The ironic thing is because you'd think, well, it's, it's good to have less UV radiation because UV radiation is harmful to your health. Um, and the other thing is ultraviolet radiation also triggers ozone formation and ozone is also bad for your health. So less ultraviolet means less ozone. And so, so there are two subtle benefits. You get slightly less ozone in Riverside and less UV radiation. But the thing is you need lots of pollution particles to cause this reduction of UV. And these pollution particles are really bad for your health. So even though, so I had a study that, uh, I had a study, but there was a press release and our press person at Stanford because this is when I was late, later when I got published, it was at Stanford finally. Um, when they published a paper, they um, had a headline said, the headline of this article, which was talking about the re slight reduction of UV radiation and the ozone reduction due to the particles, but the presence of these particles, the, <laughs> the, the headline was, um, brown smog clouds have a silver lining. And you can imagine, so the next morning I get a call from the Ape Associated Press at like seven in the morning. And they're asking, why is smog good for you? <laughs> because this line got turned around in the press overnight. And it was all over the headlines everywhere that Stanford professor finds smog is good for you. And <laughs> it was just because of the, uh, of this kind of, People wanted to see like something that oh, there was something good about smog, you know, like uh, it, it was it was sounding something like which it was totally out of context because they totally uh, forgot to talk about or just or ignored the fact that they, you needed pollution particles that caused huge health problems. But uh, anyway, my my overall point is that this computer model that I developed was uh, extremely useful for finding interesting things about the atmosphere. And it actually also led to the finding that black carbon, uh, which is the main component of soot, is the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide. And this was only found also because in black carbon, when it's emitted, it's more in pure form, but as it ages in the atmosphere, lots of chemicals can either condense onto it or combine with it called coagulation, coagulate with it. And so you get this mixture and that mixture enhances the radiative absorption of the black carbon. So I found that this was the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide, but the only way I could find this was with a complex computer model that accounted for all these interactions and the radiation transfer between uh, among particles of different size and composition, which nobody had actually, nobody had developed before at this time or, or by that time. And, and that finding held up after many, many years as well. What, what happens with a finding like that, with the soot? Um, uh, you know, we were finding that soot is a uh, second leading cause of global, global warming after CO2 emissions or, or CO2 uh, in the atmosphere. So does that lead to all sorts of um, power plant regulations and tailpipe regulations or 
Well, ironically, okay, so here's another, like I just told you one story about how something got turned around on its head. It's a scientific funding got turned around. Well, this led to another, um, the first thing that happened, I mean, a lot of things did happen subsequently that were good, but the first thing that happened was really bad. So when I first found this study, I, I wrote a paper, I found this result, I wrote a paper that, uh, and one of the conclusions was that black carbon, uh, Black carbon is the second leading cause of global warming, but also that controlling the black carbon may be the fastest method of slow, slowing global warming because it has a very, black carbon is a very short lifetime, unlike carbon dioxide, which lasts, you know, has a mean lifetime of 70, 80 years in the atmosphere. Uh, carbon di uh, black carbon has a lifetime of a week to a few weeks. And so if you remove its emissions or stop its emissions, it'll come out of the atmosphere fast and the impacts can be seen really rapidly. So one of the conclusions was black carbon is um, the fastest method, controlling black carbon is the fastest method of slowing global warming, but also because black carbon is a particle and 90% of air pollution deaths and illnesses are due to particles, reducing its emissions can also help human health or reduce human health problems. Yeah. So this was in a paper that I wrote that I hadn't published yet. And at the time, the uh, I sent it to some people at the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency of the U.S., just to review it, to look at, see um, if they had any comments. And it just it was coincidentally at that time that George Bush, or um, George W. Bush, who is just became president of the U.S., he had to decide whether the U.S. would take part in the Kyoto Protocol, which was a climate treaty to for the U.S. to, um, well, the world to, try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so he, he asked, coincidentally, the White House asked the EPA, do you have any recent papers talking about climate change? And coincidentally, they had my paper, so they asked me permission, Can is it okay for the people of EPA to send it to the White House? And I said, sure, but please don't cite it or quote it, it hasn't been published yet. And they agreed. <laughs> sure enough, two weeks later, George Bush is giving a speech and this is all quoted, this, the speech is written in the New York Times, so it's still there, you can see it. He's telling everybody why the US is pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol. He says the Kyoto Protocol is fatally flawed and fatally flawed for two reasons. Uh, one is because it doesn't include black carbon. And he says, and he even says controlling black carbon would not only slow global warming, but improve human health. So he agreed. He agreed with my findings, but then he used that as a reason not to take part in the Kyoto Protocol instead of saying, well, we need to add black carbon to the Kyoto Protocol, which is would have been the correct interpretation. He used it as a reason to get us out of the Kyoto Protocol. So, yeah, so that's two examples of how scientific research, in particular my scientific research, was misused by politicians or the, or the press to come up with um, wrong conclusions or wrong implications right so but now uh, has soot or black carbon been addressed um since then well yeah so, so subsequently california actually did have dropped rules starting in 2004 to control diesel exhaust based on the black carbon studies and the subsequent uh administrations uh actually uh Funded, put in a lot of a lot of money for research of black carbon, and actually put in some uh, rules 
rules and regulation. I don't know, not so much at the federal government, but certainly at the state, like California did a lot. Uh, there was a big push for these, what we call um, short-lived climate forcers, which include black carbon, methane, ozone. And so that's made its way into lots of policy dis, um, discussions and decisions, not as strong, you don't see it as strong as greenhouse gases, but still by far. But um, there have been you know, lots of efforts in different places to control uh, black carbon. And, but the thing is, a lot of the controls are based on health grounds alone. And because there is a dual benefit of controlling black carbon, uh, you get the health benefit as well as the climate benefit. And yeah, so it is being, it, it has been recognized and there are have been policies here and there. And Europe actually had some policies related to black carbon based on climate grounds. Uh, as well. But um, in the US, I mean, there was hardly any action on CO2 grounds. So you can't expect much on black carbon grounds. Right, right. Very interesting. And then is it fair to say that at a certain point in your career that you sort of shifted over towards wind power? Or that was that just a big study that you did? But I know you did some really pioneering work with large scale wind analysis. Well, my whole career, as I mentioned earlier, was, was to try to, the goal was to understand and then solve large scale air pollution and climate problems. And so my first step was to understand them. And so I, I felt like I had to really understand the problems to come up with reasonable solutions. And that actually has turned out to be absolutely true because today we see lots of proposed solutions that are just not helpful at all for solving air pollution and climate sim problems simultaneously. And so I did lots of studies looking at different fuel types, you know, the impacts of different fuel types on the atmosphere, on air pollution, on climate and, and uh, health. Uh, for example, I looked at the impacts of ethanol versus gasoline. I looked at uh, wind versus coal. I looked at the impacts of um, hydrogen fuel cells versus uh, uh, hybrid battery electric gasoline hybrids versus gasoline vehicles. Uh, so anyway, so comparing different energy technologies, but my foray into wind, so my goal had always been to try to first understand the problem and then try to solve it. So, but my entrance into solutions started close to the year 2000 um, when I had, um, the when the Kyoto Protocol was being, uh, discussed about, I mean, the Kyoto Protocol start, it was back in 1997, but the countries were deciding whether to ratify it. And I just thought to myself, well, I, I was, became curious, well, if we want to satisfy the Kyoto Protocol, how many wind turbines would it take? And I thought I had a class back in 1984 with Professor Gil Masters at Stanford University. It was on renewable and efficient energy systems. And he had, in, as part of his class notes, he had included this really nifty equation that would calculate the capacity factor of pretty much any wind turbine in the world, given three parameters, the mean annual wind speed, the rated power of the turbine, and the diameter of the turbine's rotor. It was a very empirical equation, but it turned out to be actually very accurate for pretty much any turbine in the world. And this wasn't published anywhere. It was only in his class notes, but I had remembered it. And so I dug out his notes and I found some new turbines. In fact, I looked at the GE General Electric, uh, you know, 1.5 megawatt turbine with a 77 meter diameter rotor. And I just did some back of the envelope calculations with it to see, well, how many wind turbines would we need of these to power 
the, you know, 60% of, or replace 60% of coal, which would be enough to satisfy the Kyoto Protocol that had been proposed. And I asked him to, you know, collaborate with me on this. And we ended up writing a paper. Well, it was, it was literally three quarters of one page. It was the shortest paper I ever wrote. And we sent it into Science Magazine and they accepted it and it got published. So it was the shortest paper ever I ever published, three quarters of one page, but I got the most feedback of any paper I ever published because then all of the coal industry and all of the surrogates started writing letters and comments and sending me stuff. And, and uh, it had a huge amount of feedback, but which really inspired me because it was really the conclusion was, is yeah, we can replace 60% of coal with, you know, X number of wind turbines at a certain number, certain cost. And that could satisfy the Kyoto protocol. But that then question arose, well, is there enough land in the U S or water to um, provide these turbines? You know, how much land would they take? Uh, what, where are the winds fast? Where would they go and stuff? So then I hired a PhD student to actually analyze wind power. And uh, as who she's now a professor at University, of, well, she was at University of Delaware, uh, Christina Archer. And she did several papers, which were really cool. One was analyzing US wind power. So mapped from data alone, US wind power, and then mapped world wind power from data alone. In fact, those were the first two papers and still the only papers ever to map world or US wind power from data alone and not from modeling. And uh, the conclusion was, yeah, there's plenty of wind to power the world or the US for all purposes. Anyway, that inspired several other studies. And so we worked on wind for a while, but then in 2008, started looking at other energy sources like solar and combining solar and wind and geothermal and hydroelectric power and so first I did an analysis in 2008, what are the uh, best energy technologies? Because people had been proposing at that time multiple energy technologies to solve the climate problem. And I thought, well, let's evaluate because some of these are not so good based on some of the some previous studies I've done, like ethanol versus gasoline and things like that, because people are pro proposing bioenergy and carbon capture, nuclear power. So I ended up doing an evaluation in 2008, comparing you know, wind, solar, geothermal, hydro, tidal, wave, uh, nuclear, carbon capture, bioenergy. In terms of externalities, came up with lots of metrics to look at these technologies, not in terms of cost, but just in terms of their impacts on the environment. And the conclusion of this paper, which was published in 2008 in Energy and Environmental Science, was that wind, water, and solar technologies, which are wind, onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and at power plants, concentrated solar, geothermal, hydro, tidal, wave power, these were the best technologies in terms of their impacts, not only on the environment, uh, but also on security. And that that we should, and the other technologies were not so good, even if some were not as were better than fossil fuels, they were not so good as wind, water, and solar. So that got published. That got a lot of feedback as well. You know, uh, a lot of positive, but a lot of negative feedback as well because of all the technologies we didn't approve of um, or didn't think were the best, people would criticize our, our study based on that. And then the next question was, well, can we power the whole world with just the wind, water, and solar technologies? So there I started working with Mark DeLupi who was at UC Davis at the time and then went to, well, it's been back and forth at Berkeley and Davis. Uh, 
And we did a study in Scientific American that answered that question. Can we power the world with just wind, water, and solar for all energy purposes? And that paper in retrospect, so the conclusion was yes, it's technically and economically possible even by 2030, but for social and political reasons, it will probably take longer, maybe 2050. And little did I know that paper would be the scientific basis for the Green New Deal, uh, which was a policy proposal in the US to go to 100% renewables by 2030. Um, but that then led to a TED, a TED talk and also uh, eventually to being on the David Letterman show. Uh, but in between, well, after the TED talk, that's what I, I met some people in uh, San Francisco that including Mark Ruffalo, who is an actor and activist, but Josh Box, who is a filmmaker, Marco Kraples, who's a businessman. And we gelled together and we ended up forming a nonprofit called the Solutions Project um, because they were all passionate about solving these problems. And we had been working on so, trying to solve, understand and solve these problems. And it turned out that by combining science, business, culture, and community, so people with different backgrounds, and we grew a broad coalition you know, of many more people, uh, that it, we had much more reach in trying to solve these problems. So we started developing, they actually inspired me to uh, develop an energy plan for New York State, because we'd done a world plan with Mark DeLucchi, but you know, that, you know, nobody controls the whole world. So it was impossible to, you know, solve the problems just on a, for the world plan. So we needed to develop more granular plans. So they inspired me to develop a plan for New York state. So I engaged some students and some other researchers to do that. And once we had like a template, then the rest of this group, the solutions project group, were able to get out to policymakers and the public and educate the public and policymakers and, Lo and behold, we got connected to policymakers and New York eventually passed, well, in 2015, a 50% renewables law. They well, so the, well, the real issue at the time was, did they want to do fracking in New York? Because nearby Pennsylvania, they were doing a lot of natural gas fracking. New York, there was a moratorium on it, but they had to, the governor had to decide whether to allow it. But there had to be an alternative to fracking to give him, him confidence that it was possible that we don't did not need the fracking. So it turned out that our plan, energy plan for New York was that alternative and activists took it on and took it throughout the state. And eventually the governor banned fracking in New York, adopted renewable electricity, 50% renewables that eventually turned into 100% renewables in 2018, I think. Uh, and but then we also then developed, then developed a plan for California. We went to the governor's office of California met with them a few months later, the governor of California proposed a law to go 50% renewables in electricity and transportation and also energy efficiency. Uh, but the transportation part got gutted, but uh, electricity did pass. And eventually California went to 100% renewable electricity with SB 100 a few years later. We developed plans for 50 state, all 50 states and eventually 18 states and territories in the US passed laws to go to 100% renewables. But it was, it was really the combination of having these plans, but also having these community leaders, uh, actors and activists behind us, business people who can then reach out to the, the broader community and could uh, yeah, reach people. I would, because nobody wants to listen to the scientists alone. 
but you know when you have people who have uh can have outreach have like I, well mark ruffalo had a very big um base of people who can enter that uh, listen to him also and then leo dicaprio got involved in our project and he took our plans to the united nations and and spread them to lots of other people awesome. that work let me uh, ask you let me ask you let me ask you a quick question um just on the solutions project and, and you say wind which we all understand water solar now is is the water part uh, just hydroelectricity or is there something i'm missing there well we include well tidal and wave and we include geothermal electricity as okay. in hydro because geothermal is you basically send water down to okay to hot rocks and yep. water comes up and you use it you run it through a steam turbine so yeah, what, what an incredible what in, what incredible um, reach that you've had with these with the solutions project, like you said, to, to get that many states to have passed laws to go to a hundred percent green energy is phenomenal. Right? Yeah, but it's really, I mean, I can't give enough credit to like all these nonprofits, like the Sierra Club, for example. They took all they took they they wanted to take our energy plans at the state level and then convince cities to go to 100% renewables. And so we ended, we ended up developing city plans as well. I mean, in the, in the end, we've developed like um, over 120 city plans. We've developed all 50 state plans and we developed plans for 145 individual countries. But the Sierra Club, for example, they took our city plans, went to cities throughout the US and got 180 cities to pass laws to go to 100% renewables or yeah. laws or some kinds of policies. And I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's something I could never do myself. But if you have a grassroots organization that has people on the ground, because it's, yeah, it takes, it takes a village to make such a transformation. <laughs> what happened? What was it like going on the David Letterman show? Uh, what was that like for you? Uh, it was, well, I, pre I prepared all day. It was uh, during the day in New York with several people who had were peppering me with questions. And so I felt like I was completely prepared and I, and I'd given lots of talks. So I, was, I felt like I was really prepared going in, but then <laughs> I remember arming you, I guess, with this, but yeah, but then I'm walking out on the stage, you know, I, like the lights are blaring, the music is playing and it's live. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, I'm talking to millions of people. I better not flub up. <laughs> and, and I like forgot everything I was going to say. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh no, at the last minute, like I was, I think I had 30 seconds to go and I was walking out there and I was thinking, oh my God, what am I going to say? I have no idea. And uh, um, and with five seconds to go, I just remembered something from tennis. I said, just keep your eye on the ball. Think yeah. of one thing, focus on one thing to say. That's all. Don't worry about everything else. Just say one thing. And I thought, okay, the thing I thought I was going to say is how many people die from air pollution <laughs> each year, and uh, and sure enough, he and I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that because I thought maybe I'll get people's attention. And sure enough, he asked me it's a very easy question, you know, like um, you know, like I forget what the exact question was, but he framed it in such a way I can say what I wanted. And the first thing I said was, well, this you know, millions of people die from air pollution each year, and you know, this is. A, we're, we're trying to solve this problem through clean renewable energy. And he was oh, millions of, he, did, he had no idea that that many people died from air pollution. And he actually, it really galvanated and the audience was really galvanated as well, galvanized, I guess. And so uh, it actually was a good segue into it. And then actually things were pretty smooth after that because he asked, he was very easy to, um, 
but he asked very straightforward questions and made it easy to respond to. And, and I take it you are just generally deep down very optimistic um, about the, the, the potential that we have for renewables. Have, has, your, has your research led you to a point where you think that we do have the solutions? Yeah, I mean, I am optimistic because, well, not only because when I, when I do run through the numbers and I see we do have enough resource and it doesn't take up too much land, the costs are reasonable, they'll pay themselves back. You save a lot of lives. Health benefits are significant. The job benefits are significant. The climate benefits are significant. There's little downside. So yeah, I'm optimistic. It is technically and economically possible to do it. There is a social and political factor that um, you have to be cautious about. But I'm not going to let that get in the way of my optimism, because you know the, all I can do is the best I can do. I mean, I can, if I give it my best effort and then, you know, whatever happens, well, you know, I can't, I couldn't have done anything more. And so I think we, if we all give it our best effort, I think we can solve this problem, but if not, then at least we've tried our hardest and that's the important thing. I couldn't agree more. Well, let's, let's leave it right there. Thank you so much for all your contributions in this climate space. Uh, you're, I, I, as I said, before we got into the podcast, I said, I can't believe how prolific you are. So take your vitamins, do whatever you do, play tennis, whatever you do that keeps you, uh, happy and healthy. But thanks so much for being part of the podcast today, Mark. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ted. I appreciate it. Look forward to being in touch. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.